this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's digmeoutunion.com. Jay, the year is almost over. It's our third to last episode of 2019. That means, Jay, we are closing in on year number 10. Oh, my God. <laughs> really? Yep. It's the ninth season. That means next year is the tenth season. That that's uh messing with my head right now. Mind <laughs> we will now would, have covered the decade you had to tell for yes. I probably would have said six. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have got to ten. We're gonna cover the decade as long as the decade existed. No that? kidding. No kidding. So <laughs> oh, that that puts it in perspective. Doesn't it? I hadn't thought that way. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about the decade longer than it says against them. Yeah, pretty soon. Oh. <laughs> and we've only scratched the surface. Only scratch. There are people on Facebook just literally today as we're recording this. They're like, I can't believe in the 465 episodes you've done, you haven't done this one. I'm like, 465 episodes. There were 10 million bands that got signed. Of course we didn't have not covered every band. Come on, people. Come on. I mean, what are we supposed There's to do? There's so much music. And if then we covered I'm 50 bands so... per episode, we still wouldn't even get through all the bands in 460 episodes. Oh, that's neither here nor there. But we are, we're slowly, we're knocking them down. We'll get through them all eventually. But one by one, we're getting to each each uh, band and, and each album. So since I, I reached out to uh, one of our patrons because I said, hey, this, this month, normally we would restart our, our patron selections in the new year. But I was like, hey, there's an extra week in December. Do you want to jump in for the last review of December? And he was like, yeah. So we're, we're ahead of schedule for 2010. Tw- sorry, 2020. 2010. And uh, back for the attack, Jay. I feel like that's an appropriate um, pun for this episode. Mr. Eric Peterson. Welcome back, Eric. Thank you for having me. You guys have no idea how hard it was not to jump in on those shenanigans, but (laughs) glad to be here as always. You are welcome to jump in with any sort of shenanigans at any time. Shenanigans are what we do best around here. So let's just revisit some of the records that you have suggested and joined. And you've been on a number of roundtables. Yeah. But last year we did Galactic Cowboys, right? Yep. And then year before that, I want to say Turbo Negro. That sounds right. Then there's some, been some comp, there's been some comps. And then we've got a Mother Love Bone episode. Yep. That's back in 2015. Woo-woo. So that's a it's a wide swath of of hard rock there, different different angles being taken, and of course you've joined us for a bunch of uh, roundtables such as our compilations and movie soundtracks mm-hmm. and swing in the nineties. Yep. We haven't covered much swing on this podcast, Jay. We need to uh, up that quotient. So I know you keep track of our our data. <laughs> I need to do another pool. Do you have a, a genre representation matrix? It's like, oh, we're <laughs> behind on our ska. When are we going to get some lounge going? Oh. Jay, no, our you know second what? wave ska, which our third wave ska is overrepresented. <laughs> I haven't done genre, believe it or not. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we try to be about the facts, like producer, record label, you know, stuff right. that's Quant- objective. Uh, yeah. Right, gotcha. So, without further ado, Eric, tell everyone your pick plus 
why you picked it. All right. So uh, several years ago when uh, I knew that I was going to yearly be picking an album, I pulled out a bunch of 90s records, and uh, this was one of them. And uh, this is a band called Animal Bag. Put out one full-length record in 1992. So the reason I picked them is – and I just realized it in the last couple of days listening to this album over and over. This is another one of those bands slash records that falls right into that slot between 80s hard rock and 90s alternative, quote, grunge. Um, they they have so many elements in common with some of the bands that became really big. And maybe uh, this week I was kind of laughing because I was like, oh, this sounds really dated. But at the time they were doing what a number of bands were doing that – became a lot bigger and we'll probably talk about some of those bands and uh i thought they were uh, just an interesting band to talk about because they fall into that that slot where you're asking which side of the cultural divide are they on are they on the hard rock side or are they on the alternative side additionally they uh you know almost accidentally fall into a, uh, a touchstone of the alternative generation which is um, they were in the pilot episode of My So-Called Life. Mm-hmm. What? And, yes. There's a, there's a scene where, where they, the, the main characters go to a party and the band okay. that is playing. And I, I'm in, you know, listening to this record once again. I was like, wow, these guys were probably a great party band. Animal Bag is the band on stage at this party. Mm. Are they yeah. playing the song? Can you like, hear them? I, I, You're playing I, every day. It's been so Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah, because yeah, it's been a while um, since I watched the episode. I watched it to prep for this, and there's a scene where um, Angela, played by Claire Danes, and Jordan Catalano, played by uh, the guy from 30 Seconds to Mars, um, they are, like, they, she stumbles into this room where he's, like, lying on a couch, and you can hear the band, like, in the background. Through, very clearly, you can hear them, like, you know... They're having a conversation, but you can hear the band be, you know, going on in another part of the wherever, and um, yeah. and they're having their awkward like meet cute at the because it's the first episode, mm. and uh, yeah, it's crazy because I when you go to the there's so that that clip is only like three minutes long and it's on mm. YouTube and almost nobody says anything about the band play, playing like one or two people <laughs> mentioned. Hey, what's that band? Or is that Animal Bag? <laughs> so, if you remember last year, I picked the Galactic Cowboys, and one of the things about them was they were the band on stage in Airheads. Yeah. So, yeah. when when last year when Tim Tim asked me what band, I said uh, my so called life or Airheads, and he said Airheads, so I picked the Galactic Cowboys, and so this time we're going with the band from <laughs> my so called life. That's funny. Uh, as far as that's pretty much why I picked them. And, I, you know, I, I try sometimes to pick really obscure, weird things or things that I think, um, you know, fell through the cracks. And sometimes I just pick stuff that that kind of touched the fringe of the culture of the time that, uh, you know, when you listen to it, at least for me, I'm like, I can hear why this wasn't massive, but I can also hear that they could have been maybe. So a little bit of history on on this band, which was around from 87 to 98. Uh, it was four members, Luke Edwards on vocals and guitar, Rich Paris on guitar and vocals, Otis Hughes on bass, and Boo Duckworth on drums and percussion. They started in North Carolina and then relocated to Los Angeles in 1989. Um they got some positive press when they moved out there. They were getting comparisons at first to Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More in the in the newspapers, which is interesting. And then they signed to uh, Mercury in 92. And their debut album, self-titled, was released that year. It's also on Stardog Records. So... We should cover that a little bit now, just because it's an interesting fact. Um, Stardog was the imprint for Mother Love Bone, 
when they signed to Polygram's subsidiary, 90, uh, Mercury, in, in 89. So they had basically their own label, which is crazy. And uh, Tim and I have been talking about this uh, uh, messenger a little bit this week, but Jay, do you know what other bands were on Stardog? Uh, let me guess. <laughs> Hold on. Well, Wait, it was one a subsidiary of what? Mercury. There, this, there's one that's really obvious. Well, Mother Love Bone. Okay. Uh, Dogs DM more. No. <laughs> uh, think of an album that you guys covered recently that the band might have been on Star Dog. Hmm. The Big F. Yeah. No. Mancissa. No, just tell him. He's like it's yeah. it's Greta. 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 Oh, okay. Uh, also on Star Dog was. Ugly Kid Joe with the most aptly titled album of the 1990s, America's Least Wanted. Oh, there you go. That makes sense, too. And, Jay, a band that you might, I think you have their album, The Velt, V-E-L-D-T? No. No? no? Never heard okay. of Okay. Uh, there's also a band called um, Thunder Pussy that was on there, uh-huh. I think. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, a lot of Ugly Kid Joe, and um, that's about it. So, interesting connection that they they were signed to. Yeah. Well, these are all the bands I think of with this with this band, so that makes yeah. sense. Um, so, the producer on this was Guy Charbonneau, not the Montreal Canadiens uh, scrappy forward from the 1980s. Uh, he was a... Uh, producer of uh, a number of artists uh, besides Animal Bag. He uh, worked with No Doubt at a certain point and uh, with Gwen Stefani. He also worked with Mastodon, which is an interesting pivot from um, Gwen Stefani to Mastodon. So he's got he's got a career going back into the 70s. Um hmm. So the first record, Animal Bag, released in 92, there was four singles released off of this. Hate Street, mm-hmm. Everybody, Hello, Cosmo, and Darker Days. Everybody charted at number 29 on the U.S. rock chart. None of the other, record, none of the other um, uh, singles charted. They recorded a second record called Image Damage that was quote-unquote <laughs> released... In that it was sent to radio in 1995. However, it, it never actually got released. They sent the so advance of the of the label or of the record. I have kind of an interesting story about that. Go ahead. Um, my local college radio station in uh, the mid 90s, the Impact at Michigan State University, had a metal show every week in the evenings, um, and I worked in the evening, so I would listen to it on my on my um, Walkman. And they, I remember them having the promo for the single from Image Damage and playing it and talking about the release date and this was coming out. And I was excited because I was already into this band and then nothing. Mm-hmm. So I remember distinctly hearing it on the radio and waiting for it to come out and it just got scrapped. Yep. And it's, I mean, this is, they were clearly giving them a shot. Terry Date is the producer on the record. Yep. Um, if you want a copy, it goes. It's right now. There's one for sale on Discogs, and it's ninety five dollars. What? Because holy moly, it's it's a very rare advanced promo that never yep. got released as a, as an album. Wow. Um, the the CD single just for one song, eighteen dollars on Discogs for stupidity it, for art's sake. Really? Uh, the MP3s were available online at one point, so it was findable at one point. I don't know if they still are. In between those two records, they put out an EP called Offering. We're going to cover that a little bit in our bonus content, so I hope you all stick around for that. Um, and then they, they actually did, or somebody put out a compilation of 
extra songs in 1998 called Miscellaneous Recordings. Mm-hmm. There's seven songs that uh, you can check out there. Um, they do have like a presence online. There's a Facebook page for Animal Bag. It hasn't been updated in a couple years. And they still have a website. You can still go to animalbag.com. And the picture is great. It looks like it's from 1995. <laughs> like, um, I don't think there's anything other than a picture and the name. Like, there's some, like, spinning artwork. Yeah. But there's you can't do anything on the website. Like, there's no old tour dates or... Mm-hmm news or anything like that so sadly two of the members have passed away um rich paris the guitarist and vocalist he passed away and the drummer boo duckworth has passed away as well wow i don't know what they've done in terms of other bands um if they if they did other work or what have you so um so yeah that's that's pretty much everything. It's the whole story of uh, of Animal Bag, as far as we know. Can I I offer just a few things? Yes, um, please. One is, uh, and anybody out there listening that's got a stack of old rock and roll magazines, you think you're going to get rid of? Ask yourself, will I ever find this information again? Because there was uh, a time when Rip Magazine covered Animal Bag, and I remember having that issue, and there was some uh, good information in there, kind of about the band and their history and. The usual kind of things, if people don't remember, Rip was mainly a metal magazine, but they also always covered punk. And they were kind of on the cutting edge of covering uh, the whole Seattle thing. They were they were covering Mother Love Bone and Temple of the Dog when all that stuff came out and nobody cared. But um, so if anybody out there has old Rip, mag- Rip magazines, go see if you can find the Animal Bag uh, write-up interview, whatever it was. The other thing is, my understanding was... They were given enough money to record an EP at the very beginning, and they delivered an LP worth of material. And I think the way they did that is they used a mobile recording unit rather than recording in an actual studio. Yeah, that's what Guy Charbonneau is known for. Yep. Uh, Additionally, I remember when I bought my copy, um, there was a sticker on the front that said – an LP of music for EP price or something to that effect – so they were, you know, they, they were thrifty. Let's put it that way. Interesting. All right, let's get into this record. Jay, tell me one thing you liked about Animal Bag. This is so um, of the time. It hits a lot of nostalgic uh, notes for me. Um, so many bands. Um that as I transition from the hard rock stuff into trying to find what, you know, um, resonated with me in the nineties, there were a lot of bands like this that I spent time with and some that I thought were really great and others where, um, it's, it's, you know, kind of awkward and they can't quite find their sound. Um, so this band, you know, they're covering a ton of ground. It just sounds so of the time you get the, kind of the riffs and the guitar and the music musicianship and the tones of the eighties. Uh, but then there's like a weirdness throughout this record that I, I don't think is forced. I, I think, you know, it's fairly genuine, but then there's some things like stylistically that sound a little, um, you know, influenced by Jane's addiction or even bands like Saigon kick. You know, there's a ton of harmonies on this that sound very Saigon kick ask, which were another band that were, you know, a transition band. Um, you know, there's there's times when they sound like um, Guns N' Roses. There's times when they sound like Queensryche. It's like all over the map when it comes to heavy melodic music in the, uh, I would say, from the late 80s to almost, you know, 93-ish. It's like if you took all of those various uh, forms of it and threw it in a mixer. That's kind of what this band to me sounds like. Um, there is some genuine, um, I think, just bizarre 
<laughs> tendencies <laughs> in this band too. Uh, that I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's just pure drugs. I'm not sure what's going on, but just either lyrically or just even musically, um, shifts and turns and choices and little vocal pieces and bridges and stuff that were just like scratching your head where that came from. Um, so for me, you know what I enjoyed, it, it's, it's just a trip down memory lane for me. It just, you know, the second I put this on, I immediately am back in 1992. Um, and kind of in that moment of as music's just transitioning and there's all this new stuff coming out and, you know, just thinking about how bands were trying to adapt and change and they weren't, you know, inspired and confused and, and all of that just comes rushing right back. So, um, that's what I enjoyed most about it. Um, the bridge of personal demons when it turns into a guar song <laughs> <laughs> is a head scratcher. Yeah. Uh, my, my question about that is, are they being sarcastic or are they being genuine? Have you guys ever heard the song Spooky by Mr. Epp and the Calculations? Which is a, a pre-Mud Honey band with the Mud Honey guys. They do a song called Spooky that's like their piss take on horror punk. And so there's part of Personal Demons I'm listening to and I'm like, are they serious or is this like, you know, are they laughing at it like Guar? Well, I had uh, – so the track before Hate Street takes a bizarre turn in the middle. Mm-hmm. Moon song. That that to me sounds like um, Spinal Tap Stonehenge. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, you remember the beginning of that song? Like when they when the yeah. stone, tiny Stonehenge comes down and they're like doing the voiceover and the speaking part and then the music comes in. It sounded like, oh, God, this sounds exactly like that. So I think Personal Demons just sounds like a natural transition out of that into this like weird kind of pseudo spooky campy thing. Yeah. And yes, I don't know if they're trying to be funny or if they're 100% serious. I can't tell what well, it is. To, it's bizarre. To me, that, that seems like this is why they probably were a great live party band. Because it seems like a lot of those kinds of songs would have been great live in a – you know, with, with people just out having fun at, you know, whatever, a bar or backyard party, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say, um, you know, I'm split on this. I'm going to just say that up front because this record is hard to digest without re- really knowing, like, are they screwing around? Are they messing with people in certain aspects? Or are they just figuring it out and do it? Because... There's part of me that when I heard or when I read that Faith No More slash Chili Peppers comparison, I was like, oh, hmm. maybe that's what they're maybe that's what these weirder parts are. Maybe they are legitimately like heading into some Mike Patton territory that isn't quite as weird as he does. But, you know, because there's listening back now, there's so many competing ideas like you mentioned jane's addiction and and this is 1992 so Mm -hmm. pearl jams 10 had just come out and i'm like oh well there's stuff that's like not that far off in terms of the guitar riffs from from 10 and 
you know, Alice in Chains facelift and stuff like that. And it's a weird listen. It's, it's totally a document of that transitional period between the hard rock of the 80s and the alternative. I think the, the description I saw, they called them alternative grunge metal, <laughs> which is okay. Those are three different genres, but we'll stack them all together and that's what you kind of get. But yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know that I can even come to a, a clear conclusion because I don't know what their what their goal was. Because it seems like if you just on the way you listen to it, if you like listen to it for all the weird stuff, you'd be like, yeah, this is this is definitely a band that would fit in with Faith No More. And then if you listen to it a different way, you'd be like, oh, this band could have opened for Jane's Addiction and and Mother Love Bone and. But you know, not that Andy Wood was the most serious guy, yeah, but probably not in the same camp as Faith No More in terms of what was going on in the late nineties or late eighties, early nineties. So, I mean, I, so, li- I I liked listening to this just because it was like such a pinpointed document of ninety one, ninety two. Yeah. yeah. So look, I have a short list of bands that that I I, I was reminded of listening to this. Stone Temple Pilots, King's X, Jekyll, Tesla, Driving and Crying, Mother Love Bone, Faith No More. And then there's one song, and I don't remember which one it is, that totally reminded me of that Lovemonger's cover of Battle of Evermore. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also, Jane's Addiction, Chili Peppers, Faith No More, um, that, that, you know, probably a little bit of Fishbone kind of that uh, funk alternative hard rock metal thing that was going on. Uh, there was a band called Follow For Now that I think was doing that 24-7 Spies. So yeah, I, I completely hear you guys on the, it, it's that moment of transition. Like they could have easily been on the single soundtrack. Yeah. And I would have been like, okay, sure. I mean, they weren't from Seattle, but neither were, you know, Smashing Pumpkins or Paul Westerberg. But this could have totally been on that soundtrack, and I wouldn't have thought anything of it in terms of its of what 1992 sounded like. Now, I don't know what the next record. I've heard that the next record, and maybe you could confirm this, Eric, is that it's much heavier than this. That they. So when I when I did finally get to hear the tracks from it, it was years later, and it was very much uh, heavier, straight ahead late mid to late 90s hard alternative rock and to be honest i really was not into that the way that um this album and the ep drew me in so when you pulled this out when you were when you're making your big list of stuff you Mm -hmm. wanted to go back to what was it that made you think oh this is one i definitely want to get out and and have the guys listen to well, nostalgic feeling for it, the fact that, as, as you guys have talked about, it is that moment in time. And so, yeah, it, it came out in 92. I think I read it was, was uh, recorded in May of 92. Obviously, they'd been around for a number of years, writing these songs, getting them together. Uh, they were definitely, to my opinion, signed well before Nirvana and Pearl Jam broke. So, um, you know, how much of them trying to catch up to what was going on at that moment was going on? I can't say or I don't know. Um, I do think that um, I, I, I know I like this album and I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I understand if, if, you know, it doesn't work for people. But there there's just something about it that is um, it's that I don't quite understand, uh, you know, the kind of how they vanished, I guess you could say. And and all of the, there's just something about it. I don't. I, I mean, I know that sounds trite, but um, I, I I've never really got any input from this album about this album from other people as well. And you guys have you know however many hundreds of episodes covered all kinds of bands. If you guys ever actually run across anybody that's quite like this, uh, you know what it reminded me a little bit of like Mind Funk. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit like that. Um because when you start to go into other bands that had a clear start, like a foot in the 80s, 
you know, I'm think, but but transitioned. It's hard to, you know, we could talk about a band like like Skid Row and and making Subhuman Race, mm-hmm. but there's still there's still Skid Row, and this to me is just it is it's very unique in that you can you can listen two people can listen to the same two people can listen to Darker Days, and one person can be like this sounds like the Bullet Boys, and then another person can be like this sounds like Mother Love Bone, yeah, or you know Pearl Jam, and it all just depends on where you're coming from as a listener, because this band is just sort of touching on the, each of those little genres in different ways, even within the same song, and you know the way that you palm mute a, a, a verse as a metal band versus a grunge band is just a little bit different. Well, just so, just the ty- the style of reverb, reverb used alone, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, makes a big difference. Like, if this record is uh, drier, does it bring forward more, you know, different influences and different feels than the way it's produced, which is very, I mean, reverb heavy on everything. Um, so even the production of it. You know, just in that time period, things change quickly. I mean, just look at Pearl Jam alone. Like, you listen to the first record and the second record, like, you you can clearly hear how production techniques dramatically shifted, yep. you know, over that course of one or two years. And this band's, like, sitting right on that line. Um, and that makes a huge difference, you know. So let me, let me I, ask, you, ask you guys this. Were either of you ever bored listening to this record? Um, you know, it's a it's a little bit long. Yeah, there there are quite a few five minute long, five and a half minute long songs. Um, I wasn't bored in like where he zoned out, but by the end of it, I was just like, "All right, I'm gonna go listen to something else." Yeah. Like I wanted to refresh the uh, refresh the ears. So I I think what what I hear in it. Which is interesting is that there's definitely some money here, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. were um, had been around a while. Um, this is a Mercury um, effort. I remember there being some promotion around this record. I think there was some push behind it. So, I think what's interesting is like you don't hear a heavy hand mm-hmm. on the record. This sounds like a band just doing whatever the hell they want to do. Right. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's contrived in that way, which is interesting. Like, it doesn't sound like there's some producer or A&R guy who's like, you know, trying to get them to write a hit song. This sounds like a group of guys who've been playing together, you know, in a practice rooms in the middle of nowhere for um, three years and doing a lot of drugs and, you know what I mean? Just being goofy. And, recorded a record it does not sound so in that way it sounds i think um genuine and authentic in a weird way even though it's produced you know yeah i think it's honest i think uh because there's some things in here that they're trying to be socially conscious that might seem a little slight or trite today but when you put it in the context of the era they were in you know it's it's maybe five steps beyond Motley Crue in, in yeah. being, you know, um, being, I guess we'd say woke today, but maybe it's not quite to Nirvana levels of that mm-hmm. or, or even the replacements levels of knowing what's going on. And so I think that's interesting as well. Yeah. What's, I'm looking for the lyric that stood out to me on that regard. There, there's a, there's a lyric about prejudice. Yes. And I was thinking, uh, you know, that could be read so badly, but they enunciate what they're talking about so clearly to me. It's a song that's about looking different and having long hair. Yeah. And um, so and that's the one that reminded me of Tesla, who covered uh, Signs, because that's kind of a, you know, that that song Signs that they did the five man acoustic jam. So. That's about you know having long hair and being rejected, and that's what this song to me is kind of referencing. So they're very clear to make it that the prejudice is not you know racial or about um, 
you know, LBGTQ or, you know, any of the things we would talk about prejudice today, but about appearance. And in listening to it, I was like, is this an OK Boomer song? Because they're there's they sing in the chorus peace and love. And it's like, are they saying to somebody that that spent their youth saying peace and love that you're judging me for looking weird? Yeah. Yeah, the line is, uh, I felt the sting of prejudice because yes. my hair is long and my eyes are red. <laughs> Today, that I don't think that would fly, but in 1992, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- that's, no, no. that's kind of, you know, yep. you didn't hear a lot of that. Yep. Uh, the You mentioned earlier the song that sounds like the Lovemongers. I think you're talking about Mirrored Shades. Yes. Because that definitely has a 70s zeppelin vibe and i think when jay was saying there's not a heavy hand like Mm -hmm. that to me is a is a good example of a band being allowed to just do what they want Forget, forgotten, forgave. Dreams are raised, toasts are made, and I watch it all through my mirrored shades. I remember in the early 90s, like, Zeppelin was not cool. You know, that was, there was a period where kind of because of. Well, so many 80s bands had, like. Yeah, they had driven it into the ground. and Co-opted parts of their identity. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think people listen to Zeppelin, not people, but I don't think it became, like, back into the mainstream until really, like, I remember hearing it in, um. Almost, I mean, I was it was on classic radio that you know boomers were listening yeah. to, but when it was in almost famous, and they uh, at the end of the decade, yeah. and he actually got Cameron Crowe got to use Led Zeppelin because they had not used their music in movies or television or anything like that. It sort of ushered in, from what I remember, like this, at least my in my sense, I was like, oh, oh yes, Led Zeppelin. So I have a different kind of relationship to Led Zeppelin because uh, I went to punk rock high school USA where the joke was that uh, Stairway to Heaven was the class song every year. And in you know 1998, 1990, like five kids out of 300 would be wearing a Zeppelin T-shirt on any given day. So to me, it was still all over the place. But those were kind of the arty underground people that were still – kind of carrying the the torch for Zeppelin. And I never really listened to them beyond hearing them on the radio. So yeah, I in I didn't catch the the kind of um Battle of Evermore connection at that time uh when I got this record. It was only, you know, after years of listening to the single soundtrack and hearing that cover that I was like, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> so Jay, you mentioned about the reverb. I think on the the stuff I mentioned, I said at, up front, like I, I'm split on this record. The reverb is like it's heavy. On yeah. This. Oh yeah. And even I mean the the first Pearl Jam record ten it has a lot of reverb on it, but this has more than that. And this this reverb is way more in line with late '80s metal production. Yep. Well, the guitar tones too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they sound cool, but they don't sound too alternative. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, once again, this was the era when what alternative became was being defined. Yeah. I, yeah. I think if you go back and listen to the tones on the uh, those Jane's Addiction records, I don't know that they're that different than this. I think the way they play is a little different. It's but the playing, yeah. This was the production style of the time. Yeah, I mean, Dave Navarro was a shredder. That's not any doubt about that. But his what he was doing was was a bit different. 
Um, and also, let's see, I want to double check and make sure. So, and they had two guitarists. I don't know mm-hmm. how much guitar Luke Edwards, the lead singer, played. Like if he was playing rhythm and Rich Paris was playing lead and doing backing vocals, or if he was just like, you know, the acoustic guy. That reminds me, what did you guys think of the, the use of acoustic guitar in this? There was like a lot of chimey, I assume 12-string kind of acoustic guitar matched with the, the kind of heavy hard rock guitar that we were hearing in the late 80s. Because that's something else that kind of, to me, sets it apart from from either one of the, the two genres that this could have fallen into. Uh, I think when it, it happens on the record, it's a nice break for me. Um, yeah. One thing, I like the mandolin, which I think is what they're using that on the song that sounds like Zeppelin, Mirror Shades. That's cool. Um, I don't like when they do... It's like an it's like an electric acoustic sound. Okay. I think Oddball uses that where it's like uh it doesn't sound like a natural acoustic guitar, you know what I mean? It sounds like a it's like sharper. Um so sometimes it's nice and then other times it's like oh, that's so it's even more 80s now. <laughs> so the, so Rich Paris is uh, credited in the liner notes with mandolin. So that okay. is on there. And I Edwards wanna, is credited with acoustic guitar and keyboards as well as vocals. So I want to talk about everybody. Okay. Um, when she get past the intro of that song, which kind of goes all over the place, it's like a funk jam and mm-hmm. there's like 25 riffs. But once it settles <laughs> into the verse, once it settles into the verse, that is Mr. Brownstone. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, the vocal yeah. delivery, the riff, it even does the cowboy the cowbell section. Yeah. I used to do a like, little, but a little didn't do it. And yeah. a little got more and more. Right. You're like, that's Mr. Brownstone. And <laughs> then they go to the chorus and you're like, it's this biggie hooky chorus. That doesn't sound anything like Mr. Brownstone, <laughs> but it's a legitimate like pop rock chorus. Like it works really well. This is the all right. I, I didn't mention how I came to find this band. Uh, we had a cable access show called Video Underground that was more oriented towards uh, hard rock. One of the hosts was a guy uh, named Ray Razor Ray Eyes, who was in a really early rap metal band out of Detroit called Harm's Way. And uh, they showed this on their like campus cable access, and they were showing the uh, Nine Inch Nails downward spiral videos, uh, uncensored and whatnot. And I was watching it one day, and the the video for everybody came on. And I was like, oh, what's this? And uh, that's what led me to the band. And now that I look at it, I'm completely baffled that this would be the single that they made a video for. And the song is, this is another one that I'm like, are they serious? Are they putting me on? You know, are they they having a laugh? What's the deal here? I don't know. Mm. It's a good... You're right, Jay. That there, there are probably seven or eight different riffs <laughs> to start that song. <laughs> right, you're and, like, and, where, where are we going? Oh, we're going here. Oh, no, no, nope, we're not. Go oh, over here. Ships right. again. Slap okay. the bass uh, a little bit. Okay, it finally nope. settles in. You're like, oh, we're going to Mr. Brownstone. Okay. Well, and then they go into Green Acres. <laughs> yeah. Which is one of the two pop culture references on this record that I picked up on. There's another one where they reference Taxi Driver. Really. <sighs> There's a lot of like I think sitting on, sitting on a couch smoking weed watching TV on this record. Sure. <laughs> so this record comes out in '92. I don't know the date in '92, but it's after ten. It's be- I'm guessing it's before. Uh, Nevermind. Because Nevermind is 
is that November or sorry, September of ninety two? Or is that to September ninety one? No, that's ninety one. Sorry, September ninety one. So this is after Nevermind. So this was recorded in May of uh ninety two. Okay. So that's when Nevermind is like blowing up. Yep. That whole because it came out late in the year and then it into ninety two. I, I mean, they got exposure in a sense with My So-Called Life. And they pushed for singles to radio, but I, th- I just feel like the landscape changed really quickly. Even though we know it didn't, you know, kill off every hair metal band immediately. There was definitely a shift. And, and MTV especially was moving towards that shift already with playing more James Addiction playing more REM, playing more college radio stuff during the day, as opposed to just on Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes at Night. So I guess the question is, like, did they have a chance, or was this, like, basically dead in the water when it came out because of what it had happened with Nirvana and Pearl Jam? And I'm going to say, I, I wonder if what happened with Pearl Jam, more importantly, what happened with Mother Love Bone played more into their not getting a bigger push because if you think about it um 92 the mother love bone so mother love bones apple comes out in 1990 andy wood dies um temple the dog comes out nobody cares you know outside of seattle and the underground people didn't know anything about this so pearl jam hits at the end of 91 and suddenly you know this this dead album apple has a whole new life and Stardog suddenly is sitting on the record that the Pearl Jam guys made right before Pearl Jam. And they quickly put out a video that's the Mother Love on Earth Affair VHS tape. And they quickly put out the uh, the Mother Love Bone compilation two CD set mm-hmm. in, in, in that time period. So I'm wondering if Stardog had – whoever's running or working at Stardog had been like set up to work on Animal Bag – and all of a sudden, hey, this this dead band is blowing up, and we got to get on selling, you know, this record. So I, I gotta wonder if if some, you know, resources, manpower, you know, work hours, that kind of thing, got funneled away from them in that moment because of the resurgence of interest mm. in Mother Love Bone. Sure. And yeah. you also, also got to remember, this is the time when all of these labels are scrambling because. All of a sudden, you know, all these Seattle bands that they thought they were going to sell 20,000 units and then build to the next album, 40,000 units, are just selling millions. So, uh, you know, I'm sure people are getting fired, people at various labels that had their finger on the pulse of of the alternative thing are getting snapped up to other labels. Uh, You know, that kind of whole feeding frenzy, not just for bands, but label A&R people and executives who... We're work, already working with a lot of these bands. Uh, you know, suddenly, hey, you work at Stardog, we can bring you over to A&M and you can, you know, work with Soundgarden or, you know, we're going to be pushing Screaming Trees or whatever it is. So I, I wonder how much of a of a brain drain and energy and manpower suck away from Animal Bag there was. You know, once again, last year we talked about Galactic Cowboys and the big story about them is that they were going to be the next band that Geffen pushed after Guns N' Roses, and all of a sudden Nirvana blew up, and there was nobody left to push them. Or, you know, fewer people left to, to do yeah. the, the A&R and the radio and all of that kind of thing. So I, I'm wondering if that played into it. Yeah, and I think what's uh, another thing I thought about with this band is, like, you can see, like, image-wise with this band, just kind of the way they look, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there was um, there was a group of bands that were that were a little bit already in the grungy kind of thing. You know, these guys are wearing like tie dye and crappy jeans and dreadlocks and just look like funky dudes that are, are definitely not necessarily the, you know, typical eighties rock look. Um, and there were already some bands that were headed in that direction. So even from that standpoint, you know, there's no reason why this band wasn't, wouldn't have been marketable at the time. Um, cause I know some of the bands, even if they had in 92, you know, put out a record that for whatever reason, the sound worked, if their image wasn't right, it wasn't going to fly and they were getting quickly tossed out. This band reminded me of, uh, do you remember raging slab? Yes. 
they were one of those initial bands like that kind of broke from the like slick 80s look they were like maybe 89 when that record came out mm-hmm. but they were one of the first that kind of stood out as more of like a classic rock standard jeans and t-shirt kind of band so follow me here is it just me or did these guys look like they could have been white zombie right yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally totally can i also say that the I, I love the album art on this it, it's it's this great uh i guess illustration that's it's very 60s psychedelic that's it, it's it's odd yeah. but uh, it I, I mean there's some like you mentioned mind funk yeah. or um even even like some of the the oh, what's what's the name of the guy that did the bad motor finger cover uh he also did he was in big chief um he did uh motor booty magazine i'm totally blanking anyways this isn't exactly that style, but it's kind of close to that style. It's in that that realm. Yep. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah, it definitely fits. Uh, fits that. And it's funny when you look at uh, even I just go on Apple Music and look at related bands. It's the Big F, Mind Funk, I'm Mother Earth, Mother Love Bone. <laughs> so now, to me, like another thing I thought of with listening to this is just how much mother love bone stands out like even though it's still in the ballpark like mm-hmm. they nailed some they they of all those bands they were able to i think nail the best of both worlds in a way that nobody else was able to yeah and maybe just because they were so isolated uh, from everything <laughs> they weren't in los angeles they were in seattle and like kind of off on their own coming up with their own unique version of the world is why but it helped me appreciate just how remarkable they were. I think what Mother Love Bone tapped into, and no slight on Animal Bag for not tapping into this, is Mother Love Bone tapped into the emotion of the time, the emotional mm. side of things. Because you had Mother Love Bone songs like, uh, you know, uh, Mind Shaker Meltdown, which sounds very similar to an Animal Bag song, mm. which is, you know, kind of a great party rock kind of slightly funky song but at the same time they had crown of thorns and they had um started on champion which are definitely much more emotional and much more personal yeah. yeah and connect on that level and i think maybe that's part of what was going on with this change uh not just sonically and not just with how people dressed and how long their hair was but you know the stuff that famously nirvana and pearl jam and soundgarden and mother love bone uh and Alice in Chains were singing about was very personal, uh, you know, darker, not. Whereas, say, um, Warrant were, were much more of a party band, you know, much more of a, you know, love song or love ballad kind of band. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of uh, emotion on this record. I'm just looking at the list. There's not a love song on here. Yeah, and also Andy Wood was just a oh, yeah. very strong craftsman of lyric and melody in a way yeah. that this band doesn't quite reach. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just just striking me that there is absolutely not a love song on the Animal Bag record. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That might be a first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They they get the no love song award. Uh, let's go to the uh, to the voting booth and pick our rating. Were the album better EP or decent single? Jason, where do you land? Well, this is a fun trip down memory lane. Like I said, you know, it's mm, these kinds of records take me right back to the spot which you know has value um to get there though i probably only need one track uh so no offense to eric but this is probably a single for me i think everybody encapsulates everything this band does and in one shot you kind of get the whole story i think for novelty stake it's a fun listen but you really have to um i think you have to have had your ear uh 
tuned in a particular way in the early 90s for this to to do that for you, which I'm a weirdo that it does. And I think Eric is in the same camp, so it makes sense. But uh, everybody to me is kind of is enough. Do you have a B-side? Or just a straight-up CD single? <laughs> <laughs> um maybe personal demons just because of the weirdness you know i think the other part of the band that i liked um uh, when they when they couldn't when they were nailing the hook obviously that's where i'm gonna go would be when they're just being bizarre so so <laughs> first, I love, it's probably the beast. let me throw this out to you uh what would be the power ballad that you would put on the b-side on this oh my god because there are several that are, are much more ballady Mirrored Shades, I guess, is that, but it's more mid tempo, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's it is, but it's also very much a more There's, laid back. Yeah, there really isn't like, a power ballad on this. Okay, not a true power ballad, but more the the more laid back kind of acoustic, maybe let's say mellow song. Mirrored Shades. Okay. Yeah, because like the last two songs are like mid tempo to whatever with acoustic electric mm-hmm. but they're not as good as mirrored shades i'd probably be at like a three song or four song ep max like darker days mirrored shades everybody and i don't know like missing out might be my picks probably yeah that'd be my max eric where do you where do you land like so 12 Here's here's where I, I'm gonna kind of try and bend the rules a little bit. Uh, there's there's a sec- selection of songs on here that are these kind of acoustic uh, alternative mid tempo songs, and there's another batch that are these hard rock kind of um, you know more '80s style songs. And so I like all of them, but rather than an LP, I would do two EPs. One that's the the uh, the kind of more fun party rock songs and the other that that's the more reflective kind of mid-tempo acoustic-y alternative songs so i would still go with with uh you know a a solid album but i would split it up into two eps okay well i was gonna say speaking of eps maybe in our bonus people want to tune in over at patreon we're going to talk about the Animal Bag EP that came out between the two records. The one record that exists and the other one that doesn't. Uh, came out in 1994. It's called Offering. It's got seven songs, which is, you know, not that far off from an album. But we're going to give a few minutes on that. So, check it out. This went long. This is like a roundtable length episode. Lot to discuss with Animal Bag. <laughs> That's what like we're here it. for. I like it. Uh, Eric, thanks for picking this. No problem. Even if this isn't your cup of tea, I think this was a good d- discussion. And I think that it, it brings up uh, a lot of things about the era beyond the actual music on this CD that I think help give context to everything that, that gets discussed with 90s alternative and grunge. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it always has to be about it being the best thing ever or most obscure thing ever. It's Sometimes it's about this is an interesting story. How does this fit in, even if it's not the most perfect record it's a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Right. Where you can kind of like look at it and understand like in a very specific way, what was going on and at the time and what they were potentially trying to do and what they were influenced on and what was going on in the industry. So from that standpoint, yeah, it's definitely, uh, an interesting little piece of the puzzle. Yep. So if you would like to be like Eric and pick a record for us to check out, even join us to do so, Head on over to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. There are spots open where you can join us at the uh, level or levels where you can pick a record after 12 months 
and you can vote in our polls. You, if you join us at uh, our steering committee or board of directors level, you can uh, pick our 80s episodes, pick our roundtables. Lots of fun stuff heading into 2020. More roundtables, more polls. Never ending. Always always getting new ideas from our folks at Patreon on what uh, roundtables we should do, like we did this year. Two of our roundtables were actually the topics were selected by our patrons. So, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Eric, Jay, and Tim, we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Away is off the sea.